Let me ask you to take out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. I'm afraid far too often when uh, we come to this portion of our worship, the thought is that we read Scripture in preparation for the message or to uh, lead us to the message or uh, preliminary to the message. What we need to understand is this is the message, what I'm about to read. If you don't have your Bibles, bring them from week to week, because this is really the message, and then we will talk about what the message has said. In light of that, uh, I have a little lengthier passage than typically I would read, but I would encourage you to follow along as it's a, a flowing account of that which took place. This is history. It's truth. We're going to begin with the uh, 43rd verse, and if you remember, uh, last week we looked at Gethsemane and what was taking place there, and uh, in the 42nd verse, Jesus says to uh, his disciples who had been sleeping, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer, verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Judas and Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion? said Jesus that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right in the courtyard of the high priest. Then he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him. Their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, 
Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your message to us, that you have seen fit to preserve it through men of old, that it is truth, that we can trust what you have said and what's been preserved. And now we pray that by your Spirit you will show us what it means in our life. You'll help us to understand portions that are harder to understand that you will apply it to each of us as individuals, to us as a church. And we look to you for this. We know it won't take place unless you see fit. And so we pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we teach that God is in control of all circumstances. We call that sovereignty. We talk about his providence, that he is absolutely in control in what takes place here in this world and in our universe. The problem is, there are things that we see that take place that we can't quite figure out how that fits in to God being in control because it doesn't look like a good thing to us. It might even look like an evil thing to us. And so how can we say that God is in control? And this is one of those, what Jesus is going through and what he is about to go through. How could such a seemingly evil act be an act of God? Maybe if we can put that together, it would help us to be able to understand a little more about how his providence works in the other areas where we may not quite be able to understand how these seemingly evil things fit into God being a sovereign God. We're going to look at three things in this passage that reveals uh, what God used to accomplish His purpose. But there's a question that I want us to try to address 
and try to figure it out from this passage because there's something that took place that in one way is mysterious. And that is that Jesus did not respond. Jesus didn't answer back. He remained silent while injustice was going on, while false accusations that surely would have been easy for him to disprove because he knew the truth. There was no one standing up. All of that was going on. Why did he not speak? We're going to seek to answer that today, and I think it fits with the other dilemma in terms of God's sovereignty. Three factors we're going to look at. The first one is Judas. God used Judas in this circumstance. Uh, Back in verse 42 again, rise, Jesus said, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Remember last week we talked about how after this turmoil in the garden, that he did absolutely, he marched toward what was about to take place. Here comes my betrayer, and basically he went out to meet him. Verse 43, just as he was speaking, speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him, lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now here is Judas. You know, whether you've been familiar with the Bible or not in your life, most people know the account of Judas. They know his story. But I want to ask something behind this story. How did he get to this point? How does one get to this point where Judas was? He's one of the twelve, and yet he plotted and schemed with the Sanhedrin for 30 pieces of silver to hand him over with a signal, a kiss, a mark of friendship, betrayed with a kiss, there in that dark garden. He had been with Jesus. He had heard probably virtually all of his teaching. He had seen the miracles of Jesus. He was an eyewitness of all of those things that all of the other disciples were. He had seen the power of the Spirit. He had, according to earlier in Mark, he had actually done miracles. All of the disciples, they were sent out. And it says that uh, they drove out demons and they anointed people with oil and healed them. doesn't say everyone but Judas did that. So evidently, he actually did that. If you had talked to Judas six months before this, I wonder 
if you had told him what he would be doing this night, if he would have even said, oh yeah, that's my plan. We don't have even any evidence that that's the case. He, he was a believer. At least in the eyes of the world. Think of that. He was a part of the church, so to speak. From the point of view of the disciples, they saw him as a believer. Others would have said, yes, he's one of the followers of Christ. If they had labeled them that way, they would have said, sure, he's a Christian. He was one of the twelve. He had obeyed the outward call. Evidently, he had made some kind of a profession of faith. He'd seemingly left everything to follow Jesus. He is one, like we read about in Hebrews 6, that had tasted the heavenly gift. He'd shared in the Holy Spirit. He had tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the world to come. In other words, yes, it is possible to be a Christian in the world's eyes, in the church's eyes, in everyone else's eyes, and still be a son of perdition, of destruction. Judas, by all definitions was a member of the visible church. Now, does that scare you? I think it's meant for that. I think it's meant for self-examination. I love the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints. I love the doctrine of assurance of our salvation that once you are really saved, you will not lose your salvation. You will persevere to the end and be preserved to the end. But I'm also convinced that sometimes we use that doctrine way too quickly to assure people of their salvation when what they are trusting in are the outward things like Judas had. He had all of the outward characteristics of a devoted follower of Christ. And yet, we know that inwardly he was not. So how do we know? How do we know we're not just a Judas? Well, the question is not, did you once believe and join a church? Or did you get baptized? Or did you walk the aisle? Or do you tithe? 
or do you teach Sunday school? Or are you an officer or a pastor? You know what? I've known a number of pastors who realized after they were pastors that they didn't know the Lord. It's not the outward things. The question today is where is your heart? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life? Not just doing the outward things, but inwardly trusting in Him alone. Are you in communion with the Father? Are you repenting of your sin, dealing with it daily? And if those are not your experience, it is wise for your soul to examine and make sure you're not in this category of Judas or any number of people that through the centuries have only trusted in the outward. The outward, those things we do, those things other people see, will never get us to heaven. And so back to our first question. Why did Jesus remain silent? Could it be disappointment in Judas that made him remain silent? Could it be devastation over a friend of his, a follower of his, betraying him with a kiss? Is that why he was silent? let's look at the second factor in Jesus' betrayal and arrest. It was the religious. Now, if you're looking at the outline, you see 48 through 65. I'm not going to read that again. But what we need to understand that at this point, this was not the Roman government that was arresting him. It wasn't a mob who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the religious of the day. This was an officially sanctioned part of the Sanhedrin council, the Jewish council of that day. These men were employed as temple police by the Jewish authorities. It's not religion. I mean, it is religion. It's not the state that arrested him. Now, here's the thing. Practically, everything about this arrest is contrary to Jewish law. We, we see that, you know, when we watch things going on in government where there seems to be hypocrisy, and I don't care who's in charge, you can always see those things. And that's frustrating. That's what we see here. That they are going contrary to their own law that they had set up, the Sanhedrin the Jewish council had set up. For instance, uh, they were never to meet at night in capital cases like this, in a case where there may be a death sentence. 
which is what they were, they were accusing him of blasphemy that deserved death. Another illegal thing, witnesses were to be warned about hearsay and rumor. We read all about that. Here we see they couldn't get clear testimony. In fact, look back at 56 again, um, verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. False statements that didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony, and it repeats it. Yet even their testimony did not agree. And so you have, uh, instead of a seeking of the, the truth here, you have the seeking of a guilty verdict, obviously. Another illegal part is they would meet in a certain part of the temple and not in the upper room of the priest's house. There's a conspiracy here. Deliberate wrongdoing because they didn't have anything on Jesus. They weren't trying to find the truth. They were doing whatever was necessary to find find him guilty. Everything's orchestrated. It's corrupt. Is that maybe why he was silent? Some say he didn't answer because uh, they had not brought forth any actual charges. In other words, they were all false. Some say that's why he didn't answer. He didn't think he needed to answer at that point. Is that it? Well, let's look at the third factor that God used. And that is, it was actually God's plan. We see Judas. We see the religious people of the day, both seemingly doing their own thing, in their sinful ways, and yet we look behind that and we see this is actually God's plan. Verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. What's that say? You know, all through his ministry, Often he would say, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come. And now he says, the hour has come. Who's in charge here? It's God's plan. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Identifies himself as the Son of Man. That's the Old Testament designation for the one coming from heaven. And he willingly walks to the betrayer, as we talked about. Then we see down in verse 49, every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Was this an accidental thing happening here? You see, Jesus is saying, this is the way it is supposed to be. What we are doing here, you think you've come and you've trapped me. But I'm telling you, this is happening because the Scripture must be fulfilled. This is not an accident. Now, we still haven't answered our question, why did Jesus keep silent? Let me read you from another passage over in Acts chapter 4, verse 
27. This is from a sermon. It says, Acts 4.27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, that's talking about what's about to take place. Maybe Jesus kept silent because of all these people conspiring against him. Let me read on in Acts 4, verse 28. They did what your power, God's power, and will had decided beforehand should happen. This was God's plan. Carried out by sinful men who thought they were just disposing of a problem. And instead, amazingly, God in His providence is using even the evil intent of these men to carry out His greatest plan of salvation. Isaiah 53. I often read this during communion. The second part of verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? Was it men that did it to him? The Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And then down in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Amazing. This was God's plan for us. Now, think for a moment about where this was taking place. They surprised him in the garden. We can get him when he's in the garden. His, the guard will be down and so on. It's no accident. Yeah, it took place in the garden. Let's talk about other gardens. How God loves to bring these kinds of things around in his great plan to show us that it all works together. Where did sin come into the world? Where was sin's first victory? It was in the garden. Where was the gospel first proclaimed? It was in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15. The Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. That's where it talks about how the seed of the woman, his heel will be crushed, but how Satan's head will be crushed. I don't know if you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ several years back. There was one scene a number of people were puzzled by, and it was, it was actually in the garden, and you kept seeing this snake slithering around. And then... The arrest took place. And what happened? 
when the arrest took place, we see Jesus stomp on the head of the snake. What was that talking about? Well, it's precisely this. Now, I want to say that was something they put in. It was an interpretation. We don't see that in the Scripture, anything about a snake in the garden or whatever. But you know what? I think it's accurate. I think it's actually an accurate illustration of what was going on there in the garden. Because what you see is that snake representing Satan, and he thinks he's having his way, making his way, and then boom. That was the beginning of him absolutely being crushed. And it was as if the story was over. There was much more to play out. We're still in it. But in terms of salvation. So we see that first garden where sin comes into the world. This garden where redemption is being shown. And you know what? There's another garden. A garden city. In the book of Revelation. Where there is a river and there are trees on both sides of that river and they bear fruit every month of the year ongoing. God loves to bring that around to show us there was not a defeat in that first garden. There was no defeat in this garden and ultimately we will see that beautiful garden that he prepares for his people. You gardeners, think about that this spring when you're out there working the soil. How he used the garden in his uh, revealing of the plan of redemption. In Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion, there's a point in the narrative of the gospel as Bach put it to music who is it that hits you? It's based, based on, of course, this is Mark, but uh, the parallel passage. We see where it says, who is it that hits you? Why don't you, if you can prophesy, say who it was that hits you. And so the choir sings that. Who is it that hits you? Not in those words. It's much more beautiful than that. The response that Bach, who's a devout believer, would say in answer to that, who is it that took his hand and slapped Jesus in the face? Bach's answer was, it is I. It is my sins that did that. My wickedness that did that to Jesus. Why didn't Jesus speak? Jesus didn't speak because he wasn't being railroaded. Judas wasn't getting his way. The religious were not winning. He did not speak because he was carrying out the plan of his father. His plan to pay for the sins of a lost and a dying world. Behold him. Behold him as no one takes away his life. 
but he gives himself for sinners like you and me. Let's bow together. Thank you, Lord, that this was not out of your plan or out of your hands, but every single detail. Even those things that evil men thought they were doing was under your control of your powerful hand to carry out that which was necessary for our salvation. Thank you that Jesus remained silent for us until he proclaimed, I am. He is the Christ. We give you all praise in Jesus' name.